Our scripture focus today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and verses 22 through 35. Now Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifice from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. Now the priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up, and this is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Now even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father, since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to you, your forefather's family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense and aware an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers family on the Israelite fire offerings. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me. By making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your father's forefathers' family would walk before me forever. But now, this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. For those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's house so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel, and no one in your family will ever again reach old age." Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. And I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And he will walk before my anointed one for all time. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Moment. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those, no matter where you are located in the city, and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, to the passage that was read for us a moment ago. Uh, and as you're finding your way there, I'm going to voice a prayer for us, and then we will dive right in. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, will you open up our hearts to receive what you have for us today? Pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us up and strengthen us and encourage our faith. Give us grace to see the Savior, even as we address a passage that deals with sinfulness of, of leaders. And God, we thank you that there was no sin to be found in Jesus. Thank you for his perfect, unwavering leadership of his people. And I pray that our faith would be found in him in every moment of every day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, years ago, I was a part of a church whose founding pastor uh, carried on a decades-long affair uh, with a woman from another state. And he was such a gifted communicator and a charismatic leader that all of that kind of eclipsed anyone from being suspicious of his activities. Uh, he was a popular event speaker, getting invitations to, to speak and to preach in various places around the country, and that provided uh, some coverage to his hypocritical and, uh, quite frankly, his, his wicked way of life. And, and when push came to shove and his sin was exposed, it was surprising to me as a, as a young guy aspiring to pastoral ministry, it was, a, it was uh, surprising to me the different kinds of responses that were given. You see, there were some who had been a part of his uh, church for so long and they sat under his leadership for so long that, that they believed him to be too gifted of a leader to undergo much discipline. And so any effort to say that he uh, should not be serving in the capacity in which he was due to the sinfulness in his life, it was resisted by some who just believed he was too gifted to be removed from leadership. And when others started to point out kind of that dynamic of just how serious sin is among leaders and the harm that it can do to people over time. They, those who would kind of point that out and would encourage kind of caution uh, about this guy serving in leadership and being in a position of influence, there were those who would get mad at them and, and they would uh, criticize them of being judgmental Pharisees and they would cast hurling, they would hurl statements like, well, the church just eats its, eats its own simply because of they wanted to take the sin of this leader seriously. And it turned out that many of the pastor's defenders and advocates were uh, more worried about the church's future than anything else. And they had come to believe that uh, the church's powerful presence, uh, that it was, that that would fail if this leader wasn't in his position. And so when news broke, I was just kind of disoriented by that. And I remember grabbing my basketball one afternoon, walking outside and taking some shots just to process all I was feeling and thinking during that time. And as I did, there were two thoughts that, that surfaced. Uh, one, it struck me that how a person handles sinful leadership in the life of a church, that may reveal whether or not their faith is in Christ or if their faith has been in charisma. Uh, there's difference between putting faith in the person of Christ and putting your faith in the charisma of a pastor or some other earthly leader. And then the second thought that kind of struck me in that moment came in the form of a warning. Because I was quite angry, I was upset, I was mad, I was questioning God, wondering how could he use someone as 
broadly as he did that had all this going on in his life in secret. And then the Holy Spirit just checked my conscience. And he warned me in that moment with the reality that, that no leader transcends the threat of moral failure and spiritual infidelity. That no one is beyond temptation. No one is beyond failing in these kinds of ways. You see, leadership among God's people matters more than we might realize. Sinful leaders can leave a lot of wreckage in their wake. That's why you and I want to be cautious and somewhat discerning as we seek to put people in positions of leadership and we begin to look to others to provide leadership amongst us. We want to be discerning about that dynamic. And we also want to be careful that we do not idolize any anyone in leadership, no matter how gifted, no matter how uh, charismatic they may be. Well, the passage before us kind of puts this theme in front of us and in 1 Samuel chapter 2, as we're confronted with the problem of sinful leaders, as we're confronted with kind of two, the, the epitome of sinful leadership among God's people in the form of a couple of guys named Hophni and Phinehas. And when you look at verse 12, uh, the writer holds no punches in describing them. And check it out again. He says, Eli's sons, that is Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. Now, just before this in verse 11, there's a transition where the, most of the narrative so far has been focusing on Elkanah's family and his household, dealing with the events surrounding Hannah's life and her giving birth to Samuel. And now uh, everything shifts to focusing on Eli's household. And, and the contrast between the two are, are, are stark. And they illustrate well for us kind of what Hannah prayed for last week when we considered how the Lord reverses the world's expectations. These two pictures, uh, these two stories put together illustrate that well because we've seen the Lord kind of lift up and exalt humble Hannah, blessing her with the birth of a child, though she was barren for so long. And, and then in this story, we're going to see the exact opposite happen where the Lord turns the tables on Eli's household. These leaders amongst God's people who are in positions of power and influence, they uh, will come, they will experience in this moment the Lord leveling them and casting them down. It's the exact opposite picture of what we've been seeing in Hannah's life. So the problem of sinful leaders that we can say right off the bat is that they are present among us, that they are present among God's people. Uh, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they were responsible for overseeing the worship of God's people at a place called Shiloh, which was the most sacred site in the world at the time. Uh, Shiloh housed the Ark of the Covenant. They, that was where the tent of meeting was located. And, and worshipers of Yahweh, worshipers of the Lord, would sojourn there regularly to make offerings to the Lord and to worship God in the fullness of who he is and only when they would arrive, they would find it being run by two wicked men and one ineffectual guy uh, by, the, by the name of Eli. So sinful leaders are present among God's people, and that shouldn't surprise us. It's always been the case. There are many people who like to be around the things of God but hold no love for God in their hearts. This is where we see in verse 12 when they are described as not respecting the Lord. Another way of translating it is that these guys did not know God. 
that there was no love for God and his ways here. They were simply posing. And there's always been posers amongst God's people. You keep in mind what went down in the Garden of Eden where Satan posed as a creature of God, appearing in the form of a serpent, present amongst God's people in paradise. And if that can happen then, it shouldn't surprise us that Hophni and Phinehas and an ineffectual Eli would be present at Shiloh as people were gathering to worship the Lord. And and then you just follow the history of Israel and you see that the history of Israel is littered with wicked prophets and corrupt priests and, and compromised kings. You, you step into the Gospels and you find a guy named Judas who hung out with Jesus for three years, present among God's people during that time. And then every letter written in the New Testament addressing churches warns Christians about this reality saying, look... There will be sinful leaders among you. Be aware. Don't be surprised. Be discerning. Don't be duped. Be engaged in the process of, of how leadership is identified and looked to and, and listened to in the life of the church. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find that sinful leaders are among us. And when their wicked ways are exposed, the question is, how does our faith respond? When sinful leadership is exposed among us, will our faith respond with, with a renewed appreciation for Jesus and his leadership? And, or will it respond in such a way that shows, you know, our faith might not have rested in Christ. It may have rested in the charisma of some earthly leader. Now, if you're in a situation where a sinful leader is exposed and and you're hurt by that, understand that hurt isn't a sign that your faith was in charisma rather than Christ. The problem with sinful leadership is that they do hurt people. They do leave wreckage in their wake. And so we want to think about that and examine ourselves in those moments to wonder, okay, it's not so much that I'm hurt and disappointed that means that my faith was in charisma rather than in Christ, but if when sinfulness among leadership is exposed, causes you to bail on Jesus, and it causes you to bail on Jesus' people, then it might be said that your faith rested in charisma rather than Christ, and we want to be on guard against that. You know, I've had conversations with, uh, with friends and leaders over the past few weeks where I've shared with them uh, why I'm hesitant to publicly endorse uh, living leaders in the church, uh, particularly those that I have no relationship with that I might only know from afar because maybe I read their books or I listen to their podcast or, or I appreciate their preaching or whatever the case may be. Uh, I'm hesitant to endorse leaders in the church who may be considered public figures that are still living right now. I'm far more inclined to endorse dead leaders <laughs> because chances are with a dead leader, you're not going to discover anything new about them, right? And so you're probably safer to endorse that. But when it comes to living leaders, I'm a little bit more hesitant because their story isn't complete yet. They haven't crossed the finish line. And so I'm a little hesitant to endorse that. And, and to be honest with you, I'm only kind of partly joking about that. I, I am hesitant to endorse public figures that I do not know personally for reasons such as these because sinful leaders can be among us. And when you consider the story before us, you see a terrible example of how sinful leadership preys upon God's people. That they are among us and their tendency is to prey upon us. You have this situation where sojourners, 
would travel to Shiloh in order to make offerings to the Lord and to worship God. And, and we're told in the opening paragraph of this story that, that Hophni and Phinehas, they had a servant that they would send to the worshipers and, and they would bring with them a three-pronged fork. And when a worshiper was making an offering to the Lord and they were boiling meat and whatever device they were using, this servant would take a three-pronged fork, stab it into the cauldron, and whatever they pull out, that's what they would bring to Hophni and Phinehas and even Eli, and they would enjoy together and they would feast together. So a three-pronged fork can grab a lot of meat out of a pot. And so on many occasions, this probably left worshipers without anything to offer the Lord. And it probably left these sojourners without anything to eat themselves as they communed with God at the table. And so this three-pronged fork was being used to manipulate a process that was considered holy, that was considered sacred. Now, if you were to look back at Leviticus chapter 7, you're going to see there some, uh, some guidance as to how priests were to be provided for from the offerings that people would bring to Shiloh and later to the temple and things like that. And, and what they were allocated was already settled and they were to be given one of the breasts of whatever they were eating and then the right leg of whatever offering was being made. That's what was to be given to the priest. But Hophni and Phinehas weren't okay with their share. They wanted more. They wanted the fattier, darker, richer portions of these offerings. They knew, like we all know, that fat is flavor. And since fat is flavor, that's what they wanted. So they would scheme and conspire and manipulate and, and claim that stuff for themselves. And just think about that. You have people traveling so far to worship the Lord and to give the Lord their best, only to see their best taken by these wicked men, taken really for them, for themselves. So you have this moment where uh, they're doing this, and we're even told that these two men sometimes wouldn't even wait for the meat to be dropped in the pot, and they would insist on having the meat while it was still raw, and, and collecting, and probably hoarding for themselves as they would do this, and and when if somebody resisted and saying, no, this isn't for you, this is for the Lord, then they would threaten the use of force and they would begin to intimidate the worshipers and they would threaten them with violence. And it was a wicked, wicked thing that they were doing so bad that you look at verse 17 and we're told that, so the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. They were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Let me pause there and 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 really challenge you to think about what this may mean for us today. When you get into the New Testament and we are, find ourselves living in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and all the changes that he brought into our worship of the Lord, we know that we're living in a day where we're not sojourning to sacred sites and bringing offerings to give to the Lord. We know that with the coming of Christ, that has all changed and so the question is, what type of offering are we bringing to the Lord today? And if you look at Romans chapter 12, you discover that our offering today is the church. Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 tells us that in view of God's mercy, that in light of what God has done for us in Christ, we now present our bodies as a singular living sacrifice to the Lord. For this is our spiritual worship. 
And so the church then becomes the offering that we are uh, all about today in our worship of the Lord. So if you are a leader amongst God's people, be warned by this. Are you treating the church with contempt? Are you manipulating people for selfish gain? Are you exploiting people for personal advantage? Are you more concerned with the things of the Lord than you are with the Lord himself? It is a dangerous thing to treat an offering with contempt. And I worry about leaders who may be relating to the church in that way. And so we want to hear this story as a warning to anyone who's in a position of leadership amongst God's people, anyone who is influencing the church in any direction. Be careful. Be careful. The Lord takes contempt in worship very, very seriously. And so we pick up the story and we have this moment where the leaders are praying upon God's people as they're coming to worship him. But then you drop down and you hear uh, Eli's kind of assessment of the situation when he talks about his two sons beginning in verse 22. We're told that Eli was very old and that he had heard everything that his sons were doing. But then we're told one more thing that they were involved in. And it says that they were sleeping with women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is despicable behavior. They are turning the tabernacle into a brothel. They are using people for their own sexual gratification. And so the wickedness is paramount in these guys' leaderships. Now, it's not uncommon. You know that it's not uncommon for people in positions of influence and power to leverage their influence or their power for sexual advantage or for sexual gratification. We've seen stories like this break out in our culture. We know the notorious names of Harvey Weinstein and and Jeffrey Epstein and, and all that they were doing and using their positions of power and influence to gratify themselves. And so we're we're quite familiar with this dynamic in our culture and society. And to be honest with you, we are somewhat familiar with it in the church as well. We've heard stories being broken over the past several years of leaders in churches abusing people and misusing people for their own sexual advantages. And, and it's really not just one tribe of the church that was found guilty of this. There's been a wide swath of leadership and a wide swath of churches who have moved in this direction, ranging from Roman Catholic churches to Protestant churches and everywhere in between. It seems that this dynamic is popping up everywhere. And churches haven't handled cases like this very well. Some churches, when news of sexual abuse and exploitation have has popped up. They've responded by kind of huddling together and trying to protect their own reputation by dealing with it internally and not reporting it to the legal officials and going the the way of the law of our land requires and all of that. And so they've tried to handle it internally. Others have tried to perhaps ignore it and pretend it wasn't an issue because they were so concerned about the reputation of the leaders involved or they were concerned about the reputation of a particular church or a particular ministry. And so they've kind of siloed themselves off. And in many cases, this type of thing hasn't been handled very well. Now, I can't speak for every church, but I can speak for ours. I can speak for our church when I say that 
Uh, I want you to know that we are committed to taking measures to prevent this type of wickedness from ever breaking out amongst our people. This is why we conduct background checks. This is why we hold leaders accountable. This is why transparency is so important to us because anyone that we put in a position of influence or we look to for influence in the life of our church, they will be held to, a, to the standard that leaders should be held to. And by God's grace, nothing like this has happened in the life of our young church. And by God's grace, nothing like this ever will. But I want you to know that if it ever did, that our concern in those moments will not be with our church's reputation. And our concern in those moments will not be with protecting and preserving the reputation of a particular leader. Our concern in those moments will be for justice. It will be for the victims. It will be to help healing come to those who've been hurt or harmed in any kind of way. We will inform law officials. We will honor the laws of our land that God is sovereign over to to see that justice is served and to see that victims are cared for. We, we are committed to that dynamic if, if we hope nothing like this ever happens. But if it ever does, we are committed to that type of dynamic. But I want you to notice how Eli handled this situation with his two sons because it's clear he wasn't ready to, to do anything about what was going down. He wasn't willing to step up and protect God's people from these predators. And so what happens is Eli, though he talks to his sons and he kind of confronts them verbally, he doesn't actually do anything to change the situation. And so Eli proves to be a weak and ineffectual leader. He is weak and ineffectual. And, and we know that when discipline is lacking, amongst God's people, when we do not take action against sin among us, then wickedness is going to grow like weeds. And over time, it's going to choke life out of people and, and people will not be served well. And so Eli did not discipline his sons and wickedness just grew like weeds among them. There's a reason. There's a reason why Jesus instructed the church to exercise discipline. You take, for example, Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus takes up this topic. He wants to protect his people. So he says, look, discipline needs to be exercised among you. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he repents and believes, if he uh, commits to changing his ways and confessing his sins, then you've won him over. You, reconciliation and redemption can prevail in that moment. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. But if he remains stubborn, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Translation, let that person no longer be considered a Christian. Do not treat them as though they are believers in Jesus. Relate to them now as though they were unbelievers because they are being stubborn in their rebellion, stubborn in their sin. Now, Paul would take Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 18, and he would apply it to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he had this terrible situation where a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and, 
And when he was called out on it, he didn't repent. He didn't recognize the wickedness of his ways. And there was no love for the Lord or for the Lord's people in his heart. And so listen to what Paul says. He would tell the church in 1 Corinthians 5.13 to remove that evil person from among you. Treat that person now as though they are no longer a part of God's covenant people because they may not be and their lifestyle certainly suggests that they're not. And so discipline was called for by Jesus and it was practiced by Paul and, and churches today need to account for that teaching because discipline amongst God's people is needed so that people can be cared for, people can be protected, so that wickedness will not prevail among us. And this is what Eli failed to do. He did not discipline his two sons, and their wicked ways just went unchecked amongst God's people. And things got so bad that their hearts hardened over time, and eventually it got to the point where they could not respond to Eli's words or to any warning to repent or to change or to stop. You notice verse 25, there's a frightening verse there where we're told at the end of verse 25, they, Eli and Hophni, would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them, that they would now be judged. You see, friends, over time, stubborn, obstinate sinfulness, stubborn, obstinate rebellion, over time, that stops being the rationale for God's judgment. And at some point, it can switch to becoming the result of God's judgment. Stubbornness and obstinacy that can become the result of God's judgment on people. Now, I know that's a heavy thought, but that thought is taught in more ways than one all throughout the scriptures that human hearts can harden. And there comes a point where the hardness of heart isn't going to, re- isn't going to be the rationale for God's judgment, but it may be the very reason for it, the result of God's judgment taking place. Now, there are two ways you might hear that. Some of you might hear that, and you might become very critical of the Lord. And you might be tempted to question the magnificence of his mercy. You might want to put the Lord on trial, wondering how he could do such a thing. And, and if you're tempted to move in that direction, let me caution you to be careful. Be careful that you do not step beyond the bounds of who you are as a human being, limited and finite. Be careful that you do not fail to heed Hannah's words earlier in in chapter 2, verse 3, where she prayed, Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. Translation, God does what's right with every single sinner. And so if things get to this point, and this is what the Lord does with someone, he's right. You and me are wrong to resist it. You and me are wrong to criticize it because we are finite and limited. God is a God of knowledge who weighs the actions of all people. And so if you're tempted to become critical of the Lord because of verse 25, let me encourage you to to slow down a bit. 
to take a step back and to breathe and to remember who you are as a human being. But then there are others who might not become critical. You might become overly curious about how this works. And you might find your wills turning as you're trying to analyze the mechanics behind how hearts harden. And you're wondering at what point does, does it get to where a person's heart reaches this level? Like what were the factors that contributed to it? What was the line that was crossed? And where is that line? How can I identify it so that I can maybe cast that judgment upon another person that I see being rebellious or obstinate or stubborn in their sinfulness? And if that's the case... And you are overly curious in trying to analyze the mechanics of that dynamic. Let me, let me encourage you to step back and to breathe. Because if you move in that direction, you are engaging in a fool's errand. You are thinking upon things, the answer of which will elude you. Because again, you are a finite human being. You are limited in your knowledge. You are limited in your discernment. You do not know when this takes place in a person's life. So it is not your place to ever close the book on another human being. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are so much higher than ours. And, and so rather than becoming critical or overly curious in response to verse 25, all we can really do is cast ourselves before the Lord and in humility trust that his ways aren't our ways and we can trust that he does what's right with every single sinner. And so we tremble before a holy God. We cast ourselves before a holy God. We trust a holy God. And so you have this going down in their lives as this dynamic is unfolding. But the good news of this story is that these sinful leaders and sinful leadership amongst God's people, they will not ultimately prevail over us. That they will not prevail over God's people. When you drop down to verse 27 you begin to see things starting to change because in verse 27, a man of God appears and he issues a word of judgment on Eli's household. And his words target not just Hophni and Phinehas, they also target Eli for his ineffectual leadership and his unwilling to discipline his sons. You look at verse 29, the back half of verse 29, this un, unnamed man of God who's functioning as a prophet in this moment, he says, you have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Meaning Eli was getting kickbacks from what his sons were doing. And so though he saw it as sinfulness, his, he loved his appetite so much that he was willing to, to continue to feast on what his sons were bringing him. And that was despicable dynamic. That was a despicable dynamic. And then this man of God speaks up and he's, he's confronting them. Look at verse 30. He says, therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefather's family would walk before me forever. But now this is the Lord's declaration. No longer. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disgraced. What's challenging about what this man is saying to Eli He's saying, look, I've been so good to you and your ancestors. I called you by my grace. I chose you for this position of influence. I've poured my grace upon you more times than anyone can count. And yet this is how you're responding. You're responding to my grace like this. Understand that eventually 
I will disgrace those who disgrace me, and I will only honor those who honor me. This is a heavy word, and it is a sad result of God's grace in a person's life. You know, God's grace, his kindness towards us as sinners, it can turn us into guys like Hophni and Phinehas who take his grace for, to, who take his, take advantage of his grace, and we don't allow his grace to transform us into holy people. We just allow it to transform us into haughty people. So we take advantage of it like Hophni and Phinehas. That can happen. Or his grace can turn us into guys like John and Peter. Two of Jesus' disciples who weren't perfect, but they were repentant. Two disciples who didn't get it right every time, but, but, God's, but they responded and cooperated with the work of grace in their lives so that it would lead them to becoming deeply effectual and deeply influential apostles. And so we want to consider, you know, God's grace can result in both outcomes. His grace towards us can turn us into Hophni's and Phineas's, or it can turn us into John's and Peter's. And my prayer is that his grace would turn us there. That we would be people who are responsive to his grace, who are repenting in light of his grace, who are believing in light of his grace. That we are people not looking to be sinful leaders, but who are aspiring to be servant leaders like John and Peter would become. The word that God drops on Eli's household is severe, but it is a saving word. It's a word intended to save his people, to protect his people from this type of wicked influence and leadership. This is why when it comes to the doctrine of God's judgment, we celebrate it. We do not apologize for it. God's judgment of sin and sinners is a good thing for his people. It is intended to protect and to preserve holiness and humility, ultimate joy among us. This is why we teach the fact that God will judge every person. And we say that the Lord is a God of knowledge who weighs the actions of every single sinner examining them to see whether or not their faith is in charisma or if their faith is in Christ, whether they believe in Jesus or they're believing in some other thing. Do they really know the Lord? And so this word of judgment in this story is designed to deliver God's people, not to destroy them ultimately. But what's remarkable about this story is that there's so much noise surrounding Hophni and Phinehas. Their actions are so loud. They receive the vast majority of the attention of this passage. And if we're not careful, we might miss kind of the subtle and quiet solution to sinful leadership that God has been providing this whole time. That even though they are engaged in all kind of dark drama, you have the Lord littering the landscape with references to a servant leader that he is raising up to be the solution for his people. Little snippets about the rise of this young boy named Samuel. He pops up four times, once in verse 11. Check it out. It says, Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. Then in verse 18, Samuel served in the Lord's presence This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. And then we're told in verses 19 to to verse 21 that we're kind of the happy ending to Hannah's story, which is a beautiful thing. Hannah and Elkanah, they kind of lived happily ever after and they had more kids. And once a year they would come and visit Samuel and bring him new clothes and just a happy ending for this humble servant of the Lord named Hannah. And, And we're reminded in that moment of 
of just how things will end for God's humble people, that God's people can expect a happy ending to their story when all is said and done and sin and wickedness is dealt with and it's in it's fine in the final way that, that we can expect to enjoy a happy ending with God and his people and things will be great. But notice verse at the end of 21. Again, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Drop down to verse 26, another reference there. By contrast, that is in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas and Eli's household. The boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. And if, even when you turn into chapter 3, verse 1, you're going to find another reference to the boy Samuel serving the Lord in Eli's presence in that moment. So you have these little snippets about the rise of a servant leader because ultimately servant leadership is the solution to sinful leadership. And three things about servant leadership that we learn from Samuel's story or these snippets in this chapter one is that servant leadership serves the Lord in humility. Servant leadership serves the Lord quietly. Servant leadership isn't nearly as loud and noisy and dramatic as sinful leadership. Servant leadership doesn't snatch headlines like sinful leadership does. There's a reason why when things go bad in a leader's life who is a public figure, that that is on every headline of every newspaper and every website is clamoring about it because sinful leadership is noisy. It shakes things up in the world that is. But servant leadership is very quiet. It is very subtle. It often goes overlooked. It often goes unappreciated. But here you have little Samuel raising and serving the Lord in humility, living in his presence, being provided as God's solution to sinful leadership. So servant leaders serve with humility. There was a moment where a couple of Jesus' disciples started arguing over who was going to be great in the kingdom of God and and Jesus caught wind of what they were talking about. And so he turned to them and he said to them this, you know, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. You are to lead differently. You are to influence differently. He goes, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave of all. Saying servant leadership is what my kingdom is all about. Servant leadership where humility is being exercised and oftentimes that goes overlooked in the world that is, but God sees it every time. Oftentimes that goes devalued in the world that is, but God values it highly, so much so that he, he would take this form when sending Jesus into the world so that Jesus would declare, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I am here as the ultimate servant leader. But then we also find in Samuel's example that servant leaders dwell in God's presence. Three of the four times Samuel has mentioned God's presence is identified because servant leadership grows in the soil of a healthy, vibrant, intimate relationship with God. Servant leadership avoids the life-destroying drama of sinful leadership. Servant leadership serves the Lord in humility, dwelling in God's presence. Now, as I was aspiring to become a pastor and to serve in the ways that I'm doing today, I had lots of conversations with pastors who, whose names you would not know, but pastors who have served Jesus faithfully for decades and on the tail end of their ministry, on the tail end of their lives, they would constantly tell 
guys like me, as we were aspiring to serve Jesus in similar ways, they would tell us, look, the most important aspect to your leadership will be your relationship with the Lord. And I heard it so often that in my youthful arrogance, I just started to dismiss it as, as superficial and shallow advice, as, as commonplace advice that's to be expected. But the more I've had the opportunity to serve Jesus and I've been growing as a pastor and as a leader in our church, I, the more those words now hit me as wise, as essential as absolutely necessary to be repeated over and over and over and over again. Servant leadership dwells in the presence of God. That's where our character is forged and formed, nurturing an intimate, vibrant relationship with the Lord. And so no longer do I arrogantly mock such advice. I I'm at a point now where every time I'm reminded of that reality, where my eyes are, they they do fill with tears as I think about the, the importance of certain servant leadership and the importance of dwelling in God's presence for us to be who God has called us to be and to become who God has called us to become. But then there's one other dynamic to Samuel's life where servant leaders grow in the grace of God. I love verse 26 where you have that contrast mentioned. The boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Servant leaders are always growing. They are growing in the grace of God. Samuel grew not just in stature, but he grew in his soul. He grew in his spirit. As he got older, more influence, more opportunity, he was given to bless others. It's, it's possible for a leader like me to get older but not wiser. It's po- possible for a person to grow in height but not in holiness and humility. And if we are to be servant leaders, if we are to serve God's people well, We have to grow in grace. We have to tend to our souls, tend to our maturity, tend to our development as servant leaders who are growing in grace. What I love about verse 26 is that when the gospel writer Luke describes young Jesus, he draws upon that verse to do so. And he describes Jesus in a very similar way. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. You see, the most important responsibility that a servant leader has is to point people to the ultimate servant leader. A servant leader's most important responsibility is to cast light upon Jesus so that people would come to see him as beautiful as he is, that they would come to honor him and not disgrace him, that they would come to revere him and not revile him. And so a servant leader's most important responsibility is to point people in Jesus's direction. This is what Samuel does. Samuel cast light in Jesus's direction without even knowing it, just growing up in stature and in favor with God and with people. And then when the Savior would come, the connection would be made because servant leaders should point people to the ultimate servant leader, Jesus the Christ. Now, Samuel was a unique servant leader during this period in Israel's history. 
He was a servant leader during a time of transition where leadership was still kind of being formalized and shaken out amongst God's people. And and what we're going to find as you read through the Old Testament a little more closely and you move deeper into it is that there were three offices of leadership anointed by God amongst God's people. You had the office of prophets, priests, and kings, and each one of them did something unique for God's people to help them thrive, to help them follow the Lord faithfully and to worship him purely and And these three offices, they start coming into focus here in chapter 3. It's real subtle, but it's fascinating. You think about Samuel. Samuel in the next chapter, we're going to see him become formalized as a prophet of God. That that's how he will formally serve the Lord. But then you have this unnamed prophet who brings this word of judgment upon Eli's household. You drop down to verse 35, and there you're going to find a reference to a priest and a king. Verse 35, check it out again. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him and he will walk before me. Here it is, my anointed one for all time. That would be a reference to king. So you have prophet, priest, and king being coming into focus here in this passage. Now the faithful, the faithful priest referred to in verse 35, most scholars believe that's a reference to a guy named Zadok who we'll learn about much later who kind of came to prominence he and his household as as a priest under David's lead and under David's son Solomon's reign and and that tends to be the most immediate allusion to that role of faithful priest but here's what I want you to think about Samuel though he was a formal prophet there were times when he functioned as a priest Earlier, he's found wearing the linen ephod, which was the garment of priests. And apparently, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they weren't about that. And so Eli would kind of wear that garment. And so he functioned as a priest in, the, in that way. And then there are going to be moments in Samuel's leadership where he functions kind of like a king before Saul and David come around. Where he's judging disputes amongst God's people, which is what kings would, would do. He would also fight on behalf of God's people at times, which is what God, which is what kings would do in antiquity. And so what we begin to think about when we think about Samuel is that though he was a formal prophet, he functioned as a priest and a king. So these three offices begin to converge in Samuel's servant leadership and they converge in him imperfectly. They converge in him uh, impermanently or are permanently, but they converge in him nonetheless. And this is where I think we find Samuel being the greatest signpost in this, or an incredible signpost pointing to the ultimate servant leader in whom these three offices would one day converge perfectly and they would one day converge permanently because there's coming a day when Jesus would arrive and he would be our unique prophet He would be our unconquerable king. He would be our unfailing priest. I mean, you just think about Jesus, the ultimate servant leader, the unique prophet. When he stepped onto the scene of human history, he did not just bring God's word. He embodied God's word. He was the living, breathing word of God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 14, the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't just bring God's word. He embodied God's word as the unique prophet. And as he did so, yes, he would expose sin amongst the leaders in Israel. He would come down hard on the Pharisees and people in positions of influence and power that weren't serving people well. He would judge that and expose that. He would warn people against that. 
as the unique prophet. But he was also the unconquerable king because kings in antiquity would take the battlefield to fight on behalf of their people. That they did not just sit back and conduct things from afar. They would lead the charge to confront enemies that would come, that would come against God's people. And back in the day of vicarious victory, when a king won, the people won. When the king lost, people lost. And you think about what that means for Jesus being our unconquerable king. That he stepped onto the scene of human history to lead the charge against our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And when he confronted those terrible realities, he was not conquered by them. But through his life and his death and his resurrection, he conquered those for us so that you and I may live now in victory. You and I may live now in freedom. Jesus, the unconquerable king, but then Jesus is the unfailing high priest. You see, the priests in Israel, they would eventually all fail. Now, they wouldn't all fail like Hophni and Phinehas and Eli's household does in this moment, but they would fail in the sense that all the priests in Israel eventually died. And once they died, they stayed dead. They would fail in the sense that they, they would bring offerings to the Lord regularly on behalf of God's people. They had to keep doing it because no offering they brought was enough. No offering that they brought could, could account for God's people forever. And this is where we begin to find passages like Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 where we're told about Jesus for this is the kind of high priest we need holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins then for those of the people no Jesus did this once for all time when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, that is the promise of grace, the promise of the covenant, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever, saying Jesus is the unfailing high priest who entered the world not to make an offering to God, but to become that offering himself, so that when Jesus volunteered to die on the cross, that's what he was doing. He was offering himself for us. And we know that the father accepted his sacrifice because Jesus did not stay dead. But he resurrected from the grave. Assuring hope and life and forgiveness and freedom for everyone who had come and put their faith directly and permanently in him as their ultimate servant leader. The unfailing high priest, the unconquerable king, the unique word of God, the unique prophet. We put our faith in Jesus, who is God's solution ultimately to the sinful leadership that hurts so many of us far too often in the world that is. And so what this means for you and I as we think about becoming servant leaders and, and looking to Jesus as our ultimate leader, well, it this means that we put our faith in the word of God. We trust God's word in Christ. This means that we live in light of the victory of God that we have in Christ. And this means that we enjoy the freedom that is found in Christ. Who has died for sins once and for all. And he has forever cleansed us, forever forgiven us, forever rescued us from sin, Satan, and death. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, would you give us grace now as we think about what it means for you, Jesus, to be the ultimate servant leader. Give us grace to connect the dots, to know how our hearts should relate to you as our unique prophet, as our unconquerable king, as our unfailing high priest. Give us grace to exalt you above any other person, place, or thing in the world that is. And give us grace to follow you all the days of our lives as we move towards the world that you or will usher in the full consummation of your kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen.